This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, thanks for coming to listen to our talks today. Uh, my name is Susan Keck, and I'm director of the NOMA Center for Immunobiology and Microbial Pathogenesis at the Salk Institute. And I want to talk to you today about something that's very relevant, very forefront to our lives, which is how does our immune system remember? How does our immune system develop long-lived immunity to pathogens that, that infect us and, and cause, obviously, severe illness and death? as what we're facing today with the, the COVID-19 pandemic. This is a photo that you might remember yourself personally having been vaccinated with polio and the day that the polio vaccine was declared safe and effective uh, became something celebrated and revered across the globe because it meant that children would be saved and people would be saved from, from this devastating illness. Now, being at the Salk Institute, which was founded essentially on the basis of the principle of long-term immunity, and normally we would be sitting in the Salk Auditorium for, for the CARTA uh, Symposia, uh, it reminds us uh, and is cemented in some ways, if you will, uh, in, our, in our understanding the foundations of how our immune system operates. And what I want to talk to you about today is the basis of vaccination, why it works, and, and how does our immune system develop this long-lived immunity to remember pathogens that we've experienced prior. Now, all living organisms have some form of immunity and, and immune defense. Uh, in our particular, and, and these immune systems, these immune responses, this form of immunity is shaped on, on fundamental traits, cardinal traits. Now, every animal has the ability to recognize and sense pathogens in the environment and to understand, to incorporate that diversity of the different types of pathogens that the animal can sense and, and plants of course as well can sense this there's this diversity must be immense to have the ability to sense and recognize numerous and, and many different types of pathogens in our in our environment and so this diversity is one of the most is what we call the cardinal traits but specificity is also essential and that ability to recognize the pathogen from self the self non-self recognition is also essential so that our immune systems at, uh, are appropriately uh, defending against the right types of organisms and not attacking self, which obviously is something that breaks down in the form of autoimmune disease. So having this specificity, this non-self self-recognition uh, is, is important for the, the proper control of our immune system and also specificity for being able to precisely recognize the pathogens that, are do, that cause damage from the microbes that actually are beneficial, such as those that are in our microbiome, our commensals, those types of beneficial microbes for which we want to develop tolerance to and, and not have uh, immune responses against. So specificity, diversity are two of the traits. And the third trait that's actually more um, um, uh, unique to our own immune systems is this ability to develop long-lived immunity, the ability of our immune systems to remember. We often think of memory as part of our, our, our brain and what our neurons do, but our immune system can also remember. And just instilling this long-lived immunological memory is, is another cardinal trait of our immune system. So you can think about when we're exposed to a pathogen and for the first time, our, our bodies have two, our immune systems have two fundamental jobs that they need to do. Job number one is to, to fight the present infection. We need to 
We need to clean up the house. We need to, to, to tame the fires. We need to eradicate that pathogen. And so fighting that present infection is obviously essential for, for health. Our second job, though, that our immune system has to do is to control the, the future infection. How do we protect ourselves against that, that same pathogen should we encounter it again? And the chances that you've encountered it once are very high that you're going to encounter it again. So how do we develop this ability to protect ourselves from the present infection as well as enable our bodies to develop immunity and defenses to future infection? Now, this was has been observed in history for, for thousands of years. The first written observations of long-term immunity came from the Greek historian uh, Thucydides in the early 400 BCs during the, the plague of Athens, where he noted that individuals who had recovered from the plague, they were able to, to care for the uh, sick and they would not experience the illness again. And he noted by saying that the, the same man that was never attacked twice, at least fatally. So it was observed that these people could recover health, that recovered from the infection, could actually not experience the same severe illness or death again. And so that was one of the first written observations of protective immunity. But what was probably the most evident uh, form of uh, experimentally uh, was was when uh, the use of vaccination was first indoctrinated into into our, our our society, and this was uh, the famous experiment. It was really an experiment by Edward Jenner in 1796, where he had noticed that milkmaids who developed cowpox and, and others had noted that they were more resistant to developing smallpox. It was kind of observed again that these these that these milkmaids were immune to 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 getting smallpox and because he saw that the the pustules of the cowpox fire of the cowpox that the these milkmaids would get the pustules looked very similar to this the pustules that were observed on people who were infected with smallpox he actually had the intuition that perhaps there was a common or similar uh, agent that was causing these diseases because of the similarity in the, the manifestation of the disease and these pox uh, uh, blisters that would form on the skin. And so he thought with this knowledge that perhaps that he could give somebody the cowpox virus much to what these milkmaids were, were having happen just by their exposure to the, to the cows, that if he were able to give another person cowpox, that that might induce a form of immunity to the cowpox virus that would be cross-reactive, be cross-protective to, to the, the, the agent that caused smallpox. And this was before we understood viruses. And, and he was able to show by immunizing then uh, James Phipps uh, with a, a, some of the fluid from a cowpox blister. He saw that when he did that, he put it on the skin of the, of the, of the little boy that a blister did form. And then he waited a couple months and did the experiment that, of course, uh, cannot be done today. He then inoculated uh, uh, this little boy with then the, the scab of a blister from someone who had smallpox and, and tested whether or not this, this child uh, got the disease and, and no disease uh, formed in this child. So this was the first evidence of, of vaccination the first um, uh, experimental evidence that one could use. Uh, in, in this case, what was also very interesting is they used a very similar type of a virus, not the actual virus, but a very similar type of virus enabled her to get cross-protective immunity to, to the smallpox virus. And so over the next hundreds of years, 
then obviously trying to understand what were the what was the cause of this immunity, what was was the molecular and cellular basis of this immunity, became uh, created the field of immunology. In the late 1800s, uh, Dr. Kitasato and Emil von Boring were some of the first to really start to identify and I guess provide evidence that there were products in our in our circulation that could provide this type of immunity. And these were experiments that they had been doing by working with diphtheria, where they would immunize with the diphtheria uh, into animals, uh, and then they would wait in the animals that were recovering, were able to recover from that diphtheria infection or, or, the, or the toxin at that time. They could then transfer the, the serum from those animals into animals who had not been exposed to, to the, the, the diphtheria toxin. And then they were able to find that that transfer of serum that was able to provide immunity to those animals if they were then challenged with diphtheria. So there was something protective in the blood and serum of these uh, animals that were previously exposed to the, to the diphtheria toxin that when they were able to transfer the serum was able to protect those animals from, from uh, developing disease and, and death. And they also did this for tetanus around the same time. And then with, through, the, through moving forward a, a few hundred years, what we were able to then discover was that the basis of this protection was, was the, the molecule, which is an antibody, which is shown here on the slide, which is a, a beautifully shaped, Y-shaped antibody um, that has these variable regions for detecting and binding very specific, specifically to the to the the parts of the the pathogen that the antibodies are being formed against, and this is what forms what we refer to as the the variable regions, which is where that diversity comes from. And these regions of the antibody can be different for every different type of a pathogen or a, a, a non-self protein that that our immune system can recognize. This diversity is encountered because these these ends of these antibodies can be different for different antibodies. And so this creates the diversity, but also the specificity because these are able to, to specifically recognize these, these foreign antigens. Now, these antibodies are, are produced by, by certain types of immune cells in our body, which are uh, B cells, also called plasma cells. And these cells are essential for providing us with this humoral immunity that antibodies uh, provide. Now, antibodies have many different ways in which they can protect uh, and, but one of the ways that is most notable is that these antibodies can bind to regions of viruses, such as in SARS-CoV-2, something that we're learning a lot about today, can bind to the, the, the proteins on the outside of the virus, and that these antibodies can then, by binding there, can inhibit that virus from binding to the cellular uh, host proteins on the surface of our cells, such as the ACE2 protein, the receptor for SARS-CoV-2, and this can then neutralize that virus from from uh, being able to infect those cells. So these are some of the ways in which antibodies can be quite protective. And this is how passive immunity was actually used because it was able to provide the antibodies that could then coat the pathogens and prevent them from, from protecting. Now, passive immunity is something that naturally occurs all the time as we uh, breastfeed our, our children and the, passive of, the passage of antibodies from the mom to the, to the, to the child is something that happens um, uh, all, all the time and is a very important process for, for early um, uh, health in, 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 our, in our young in our babies and, and young children. 
So this type of passive immune therapy of serum was then widely adopted uh, after these uh, early discoveries of transferring both serum from people, recovered people who had been exposed to an infectious agent to to people who were who were succumbing and and having severe um, um, uh, disease to prevent death to those infections. And also it started to be adopted with animal serum. Animals would be immunized to, to some of these toxins and the antibodies from these animals would then be to, used to treat people who were also suffering from various infections. And so, so this form of passive immune therapy was used widely in the early 1900s. It was used for the 1918 Spanish flu. It was used for measles. It's been used for the rec- even more recently with the outbreaks of Ebola and, and the, the past SARS and even the current uh, SARS pandemic, uh, some of some form of passive immune therapy is being used. But what's important is that to, to realize though, that this is not a vaccine, these, this is a treatment because this does not provide long lived immunity. The transfer of these antibodies, the, the therapy lasts only for as long as these proteins will will persist in, in, in circulation of the of the recipient's body. And so they they usually last for a few weeks, but it's not it's not uh, unless they keep giving delivered. So it's not uh, the way in which we induce long lived immunity. But the reason why I wanted to bring this up was because it's important because this is how we first started to understand what was the basis of, of immunity. And so passive immune therapy gave us this evidence that we do have circulating products and cells in our body that can provide immunity. And so what are those cells and, and how do they form? And that's something that my lab has been interested in, in working on for, for, many, for many decades now. We, uh, you can think about the, the cells that give rise to this long-lived immunological memory in, in basically two types of cells. There's the memory B cells that we, we already talked about, which produce the antibodies, and the long-lived plasma cells that just, they continuously pump out antibodies. Once they've been created, because they've been exposed to the pathogen or to the, to the toxin, once they've been created, they will continue to, to uh, produce antibodies constitutively. But you also have these long-lived memory B cells that remember that pathogen that were once uh, that was they were first um, uh, generated against, and that they can go on to persist for long periods of time as well to to remount a secondary response when it uh, comes. And we also have memory T cells, and these are the cell types that I work on. We have two different classes of T cells. We have CD4 helper cells. We have CD8 killer cells, and these are very important T cells to to help us fight against different types of infections. CD8 T cells are very important for fighting viral infections and CD4 and CD8 combined are important for, for many other types of, of pathogens that are infected with us. But the important thing is to, to know is that the, the basis of generating immunological memory it is, consists of these main cell types, our memory T cells and our memory B cells. And that inducing these cells then is the is the ultimate goal of what a protective vaccine would do or using immunotherapies to modulate the the functionality and the formation of these cells uh, in during an immune response so how do these cells form we know how they form by studying um, many models of, of infection and also profiling now the immune responses in humans over different types of viral infections or, or in vaccines such as uh, yellow fever vaccine and smallpox vaccine. These have been uh, well characterized in, in humans now. But the general characteristics of an immune response consists of three phases. There's the first phase when the infection initiates and the virus, for instance, in the viral infection starts to expand 
and this is uh, we refer to as the expansion phase. And while we have very few viral-specific T cells that can recognize that virus, there are, there are a, a small number of cells pre-existing in our body that can recognize that virus. But what these cells start to do is undergo clonal expansion. And one cell will replicate to two cells, two to four, four to eight, and so on. This exponential growth of T cells will occur, and of B cells as well. I'm just focusing here on the T cells in this graph, but you'll start to see this rapid increase in the number of cells that recognize that virus that are specific for that virus. And this is during the acute phase of the, of the response and of the infection. And usually for most common colds, uh, the infection is cleared within a couple of weeks. And following the resolution then of that infection with the control of the pathogen, what you see then is the second phase, which is the contraction phase. And while you generated millions and millions of these viral specific T cells during the first phase, most of these cells are actually going to die during the resolution phase. And what you're left with then is as you enter the third phase, which can be many weeks to many months after infection, is what we refer to as the memory phase. And this is where the formation of these long-lived memory T cells and memory B cells is occurring, is during this latter phase of the, of the response. So you can think of these cells that form early and develop a lot of important functions and, and deploy lots of weapons to, to eradicate the pathogen. We refer to this early phase as, as these effector cells, which are able to fight the present infection, because that's their job, they're being generated to fight the present infection. But over the course of the contraction phase, what you're left with then is a smaller number of these cells that go on to seed the memory pool. And these memory cells then are what are used to fight the future infection. So now you can kind of see how we, our immune systems are able to do both job number one, to fight the present infection, and job number two, to fight future infections through the course of this primary, this first exposure to, to the pathogen. Now, if we look at this at a cellular level, you can see that um, these T cells initially start off as what we refer to as naive, because they haven't seen the, the pathogen that, that they might recognize. But upon that infection and getting activated, recognizing that pathogen, they then start to become um, activated. They start to proliferate and expand, and as we had talked about, developing into these effector cells, but only a very small number of these cells will survive to go on to give memory cells. And this, this number of five to 10% surviving is, is, has been seen reproducibly across many different types of infections. So this is it's a very common attribute that you generate millions and millions of T cells during the primary infection, but only a very small number of those cells go on to become your memory cells. And that was a fascinating question. What is the reason why only a small percent of these cells are able to give rise to, to our, these long-lived memory cells that are endowed with this ability to provide this long-term immunity? What are the decisions and the, and the, and the processes that are guiding this, this, the formation of this, of this small pool of memory cells? And many years ago, we knew the kinetics of this immune response, but we didn't know really any of the, the, the molecular uh, pieces or parts of the pathway that were involved in making this decision of who, which cells were going to give rise to, to the memory T cells. And so many years ago, we set off to try to tackle this by looking at the genes that were expressed in these long-lived memory cells versus this pool of effector cells that we knew was going to give rise to the memory cells, but most of these cells were going to die. And we were trying to ask what, what genes might be involved in this life or death decision that these effector cells are making to determine which of these cells were going to go, give on, go, go on to give rise to the memory pool. 
And one of the genes that we identified, and this was many years ago, but it was still a fundamental um, uh, finding to the field, was the discovery that the cells, that the memory cells expressed high levels of a, of a receptor called interleukin-7 receptor. And this was really important for the memory T-cell survival. And when we started to then look more closely at these effector cells, at the expression of this IL-7 receptor, what we found was that there were indeed a subset of cells that expressed higher levels of IL-7 receptor, like these more mature memory cells. And that what we found was that this, this was able to identify and distinguish the precursors, the progenitor cells of this effector pool that would go on to give rise to this long-lived memory T-cell population. So during the course of this immune response, the, the population of effector T cells is heterogeneous, and there are some cells that are, are forming, but they don't have the potential to give rise to this long-lived pool of memory cells. But there's a small subset of cells, these memory progenitor cells, that are becoming uh, uh, destined and, and, and uh, determined to give rise to this long-lived memory pool. Um, and part of that involves the expression of IL-7 receptors. So how do these memory progenitor cells form? If they're important for establishing this memory pool, then how are they forming earlier in the immune response during the, the first few days of infection? And so by having this tool now, being able to distinguish these memory progenitor cells from these, these other effector cells that we refer to as terminal effector cells that would die after the infection, we're able to then compare these populations and start to identify the genes that made these cells distinct from one another. And, what, and many of these genes that we found that were a, a, associated with being a memory progenitor or a terminal effector cell started to then uncover many of the pathways that were involved in uh, the formation of these two different types of, of T cells that form, the memory progenitor cells and the terminal effector cells. What this did was then to give us the, uh, help us to elucidate the transcriptional programs that were uh, helping to create the development of these memory progenitor cells and these terminal effector cells. And these transcriptional programs ended up having opposing functions to orient these alternative fates that were uh, being produced during this primary immune response. We also identified through the, through the dissection of these different cell types, many of the signals in the environment that are being produced during the infection that would instruct these different cells to form. And while we identified that many of the inflammatory mediators are associated with infection help to drive these terminal effector cells to form, that will be very important for fighting the present infection, but again, they lose the ability to, to give rise to this long-lived memory pool. Many of the inflammatory mediators produced during infection will help to support these terminal effectors. But what we also found that was very uh, counterintuitive is that anti-inflammatory factors can actually help promote the formation of these memory progenitor cells. And so there's a balance between inflammation and anti-inflammatory signals that help to balance this decision that creates these effector pools with these diverse fates, these different long-term fates. And I just wanna end with them thinking about um, how this then relates to uh, some of the questions that we're thinking about today, uh, especially in light of COVID-19, which is that what, is gonna, what are going to be the types, the right types of, of immunity, long-term immunity that we need to establish with the vaccines that are, are going to be tested in, in people. And, there are, and there, while memory T cells and memory B cells are, are essential for, for providing us with this long-term immunity, I want you to also appreciate that there is many different types of memory T cells. And actually uh, what happens after our first exposure to that pathogen is that we, we, we kind of shield our body from the outside in 
with lodging different memory T cells in different compartments in our body. And as you can see here, virtually every tissue in our body can harbor different types of memory T cells. And some memory T cells circulate throughout our blood system and they can might go into tissues and then go back into circulation. We refer to those as circulating memory T cells. And there's many different types of memory T cells within the circulating pool. But there's also a very uh, important form of what we refer to as tissue resident memory cells. We have some memory cells that will enter the tissue upon the first infection and they'll remain there for very long periods of time, years, sometimes even decades after that first exposure. We see these long-lived resident memory T cells in many different tissues, largely our barriers. We see them in our lungs, we see them in our intestines, in our skin, so they can, they can lodge themselves long-term and reside long-term in our tissues uh, that are, provide barrier function. But they also are found in other internal organs such as our brain our kidneys, our liver. So we can see these long-lived resident memory cells in, in almost every tissue that's been studied. And it's a cooperation of these circulating memory T cells and these, and these tissue resident memory cells that helps us, again, provide that shield, kind of having protection from the outside in because these memory T cells are at our barriers. They're there at the portal of, of infection. They're right there at the front line when that pathogen should enter. And their immediate responses help to provide protection to that tissue. So as we think about what types of memory we're going to need for uh, COVID-19, for protection of COVID-19. Now, we need to be thinking about forming the circulating memory and the, and the humoral immunity, such as what's provided by our B cells. But also probably very important will be these, these lung resident memory cells, that these memory T cells that can persist in our lungs and, and provide protection to, to respiratory infections when, when, our, when, we, when we inhale those pathogens. And so I think this is going to be an important aspect that we think about is how does uh, what types of memory T cells are induced by COVID-19 and which, which types are going to be the most protective for, for long-term immunity to this virus. And so with that, I just want to thank you for your time and thank my lab for, for all the ideas and great work that they do. And of course, funding from uh, the Nomus Foundation, uh, as well as uh, the NIH, which has been uh, essential to allow us to do this work. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.